Acts chapter 2 this evening. We are going verse by verse through the book of Acts. We're a couple studies in. We're in chapter 2 this evening. Acts 2 beginning in verse 1. Birthday parties are meant to be celebratory occasions. However, even a quick Google search of fights at birthday parties are gonna, is going to expose you to an ever-growing list of stories which chronicle the melees that break out in the last place they should. In 2010, there was a fight at a three-year-old's birthday party that involved 75 people, required the intervention of no less than 20 police officers. In 2012, ABC News published a story titled Chuck E. Cheese, where family feuds at birthday parties turn into violent brawls. One Chuck E. Cheese location, one location uh, in Pennsylvania has had a lot of problems historically. I believe it's closed down now. But according to police chief Robert Martin, local authorities were called to that location 17 times in the space of 18 months, starting in 2009. If you read or listen to a variety of teachings on the book of Acts, you're going to find that a big fight breaks out right here in chapter 2. Not on the page, but among Christian brothers and sisters who are interpreting the passage. We've seen already that Acts can be a controversial book when we're talking about doctrine, whether it's the selection of Matthias or Paul's Jewish vow that we'll see in chapter 18, the separation of Paul and Barnabas over John Mark. Uh, There are different spots within the book where Uh, People have pretty big differences of opinion. Now, chapter 2 is also a bit of a lightning rod for doctrinal controversy due to the arrival and activity of the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit behaves, relates to us, and operates through us is a major point of division within the church. Oftentimes, a church's particular stance on this issue, on the Holy Spirit, is a deal breaker for people who are looking, you know, for a new church or kind of looking around for where they might want to attend. This evening, as we look at our text, we want to address some of the disagreement, but hopefully we won't get too bogged down in that part of the discussion, because Acts chapter 2 should be more than a melee. It records for us the birthday of the church the church that you and I are a part of right now. And as we look at these verses, we can discover just how wonderful the gift of the Holy Spirit is. Not just the gifts that he gives us when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit that are talked about more in the epistles, uh, but he himself, that blessed gift, that sweet comforter sent from heaven for us. If you're a Christian, he's yours tonight. He's been given to you. And throughout the book of Acts, we find that he is a gift so wonderful that it should endear us more and more to the giver. Have you ever really received a really great unexpected gift? Uh, Just something that wasn't on a list that you gave to someone or wasn't something that you kind of whispered into someone's ear, but just a really precious gift that you wouldn't have expected for yourself and maybe it came as a surprise even. Uh, a gift To get a gift like that creates an affection in your heart for the person who gave it. The same should be true as we ponder the gift of the Holy Spirit. We will see the wonderful, tender love of God on display here, God who wants so badly to add to the church those who are not yet saved. Now, when we begin here in verse 1, a little background, we recall that there are about 120 disciples. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they're in a holding pattern, praying together, going over the scriptures. They're mostly just waiting, and then our chapter begins. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. 
We can't even get out of the first verse without some disagreement among scholars. What place are they hanging out in? Verse 2 is going to reference a house, but there's some reason to think that the term used could have been referring to the temple itself. Others feel that this scene in chapter 2 is still taking place in the upper room that we find out about in chapter 1. And we just don't know exactly for sure where they're at. What seems clear is that, you know, at the end of the chapter, Peter is going to preach to a crowd of thousands, more than 3,000 people. And 3,000 plus people can't fit in the upstairs room of any house, right? And so either the disciples were in the temple complex when all of this happened. Luke's gospel, by the way, said that they were continually going to the temple during this period. Or they were in the upper room, and when everything happens, the disciples then go downstairs to preach to the crowd that is gathered on the street. But here, finally, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, 50 days after the crucifixion, it was time for the church to be born and the Holy Spirit to arrive in a new way, ushering in a brand new dispensation in God's dealings with mankind. Now, if I had been one of the disciples... I'm sure I would have gotten a little itchy, a little impatient, uh, waiting for the Lord to give birth to his church. What's the holdup? I remember when we were having our uh, first son, he was a number of days past his due date, and we just wanted to get this show on the road. Uh, we've been pregnant for a plenty long time, and so can we, let's, let's do this. I remember we, we were walking, we're doing a lot of walking, because they said that that would help, and then we had the conversation of, because they say, well, take some castor oil, right? Because that's like a wives' tale that that can help, you know, induce labor. And we thought, are we going to do that? And I was like, why not? I don't have to do it. (laughs) We didn't do that. But anyway, I would have gotten a little bit impatient. Jesus had said, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to be the best thing that you can imagine. In fact, it's better that I leave so that he comes. I'm going to give birth to this church. It's going to blow the world over, and you're going to do more than I've ever done, you know, as all of you go out throughout all the world. And I would have been like, all right, well, what's the problem? Let's get the curtain raised on this thing. But God has reasons for his timing. And here we'll find that there were great practical reasons for the timing of Pentecost, and there were profound symbolic reasons. Let's look at the symbolic first. In the Old Testament, God established a calendar for the nation of Israel. There were a number of feasts on this annual calendar. You can learn a lot about them on our website. We've got a series titled Fantastic Feasts and where we find them. Uh, But God's feasts were not just for Jewish benefit only. They were also symbols and foreshadowing of the work the Lord would ultimately do for the whole world. Passover was the foreshadowing of the cross. First fruits was the foreshadowing of the resurrection. And then scheduled 50 days after the Passover on the calendar of Israel, there was the Feast of Weeks. This was the foreshadowing of Pentecost. At the Feast of Weeks, God's people celebrated the wheat harvest and the giving of the law. Now, in the church age, Pentecost is fully realized. When, for the church, it's the celebration of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the greatest harvest the world has ever known, a harvest that reaches every continent in every century, and one that Jesus has invited us to be a part of, the harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Tornado survivors often describe the sound of the storm as a continuous rumble and roar like enormous freight trains barreling through the center of town. 
That sound on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem, it's about 9 a.m. at the time, by the way, it traveled from heaven to earth, surrounding a group of somewhat unsuspecting disciples. Of course, they knew that the Spirit was coming. Jesus had said the Spirit was going to come, but they clearly did not know when. They had no part in bringing him into the room that day. They did not conjure him. They did not convince him to show up. This was heaven's decision and heaven's timeline. In any discussion of the Holy Spirit, we must always remind ourselves that he is not the force like in Star Wars. He's not a magical power where if a person will just focus enough, they will be able to summon spiritual abilities as if they're some sort of Thor shooting uh, lightning out of his hammer, right? Uh, The Holy Spirit isn't a force. He's a person. He's a real person. A real person, like you and me, right? Only he's God of very God. And he's a person who knows you and loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. Uh, He's powerful, of course, but uh, all of the Godhead is powerful. And so the Holy Spirit is a person, and he arrived just on time. Why was wind the sound? Have you ever thought about that? It's not the only sound associated with uh, the Lord in the Bible, There are times when he sounds like a rushing wind, but there's lots of times when he sounds like rushing waters, or there's times where he came in the sound of a great army of soldiers. Why the wind? Well, there are a lot of wonderful symbolic reasons. The wind is an invisible power, like the invisible power working through the church. Uh, The wind comes and goes as it pleases. There's no telling God what we want him to do, Uh, much the opposite, in fact. We are to obey how he directs. But also the wind, by its very nature, scatters things, things like seed, which travel, sometimes really long distances, to be planted in some far field to grow and bear fruit where the wind plants it. Verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. The image is that a flame came down above them and then divided itself from one hole into pieces, piece by piece, traveling to rest over each individual believer in the place. Uh, Imagine our group here, not unlike the group of disciples in either the temple or the upper room that morning, and a fire would come down, maybe where the ceiling fans are, and a piece would travel to where each one of you is sitting, not on the blank chairs, not over the door, but just to exactly where each one of us finds ourselves. Went right to the spot where one of God's precious disciples were and gently sat with them where they sat. This emblazoning wasn't just for Peter. It wasn't just for the 12. It wasn't just for a certain class of them, the ones who you know were gold members and paid up all their dues. It was for all of them. It was for each of them. They all received the same equal measure of this activity. Did you know that you have the same Holy Spirit alive in you as lived in Charles Spurgeon or George Mueller or Amy Carmichael or insert whatever hero of the faith you think about and think, man, that was a Christian. And certainly we should be inspired by great men and women of the faith, but the same Holy Spirit is alive in you if you're a Christian here tonight. Perhaps our giftings are different. Certainly, our individual callings are just that, individual, right? 
you and I are not called to be the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 1800s, that's clear. But if you're a Christian, you're given the Holy Spirit in equal measure to all who have come before you. God does not play favorites. Here's what Paul said about the issue in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. That's a great verse, something to remind ourselves of. And this isn't something that you have to apply for or get proper certification for. Pentecost wasn't just for 120 people, it's for all of us. Anyone who's been born again, that is for you. As a member of God's church, it is your birthday present from heaven. Verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice here, a second thing has happened. The fire came down, and we recognize this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now something else has happened. They were all filled with the Spirit. We could spend a long time on this verse, but suffice it to say this. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a one-time occurrence that we as Christians receive from the Lord. And then the Bible talks a lot about being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we see happening multiple times to people in the book of Acts. In fact, to the same group of people, they're filled anew in multiple cases. We are commanded in the epistles to be filled with the Holy Spirit indicating that unlike the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the filling the New Testament talks about is something that we cooperate with or refuse to cooperate with. While the signs of verses two and three, the wind and the fire, while those were a once-for-all action in church history, verse four here serves as an illustration to us of the way God the Holy Spirit works in the experience of believers during the church age. Not that we will all speak with other tongues, but that the Holy Spirit's work is to fill those who have been baptized as they faithfully walk with the Lord. And this filling dynamically empowers Christians to glorify God and to serve him day by day in ways that would be otherwise impossible without the filling of our helper, the Holy Spirit. That's what we're seeing going on here. Now that day, the Holy Spirit announced his arrival with a supernatural manifestation, wind and fire, but then he immediately got to his work of activating Christians to fulfill their great commission, right? As soon as he arrived, we would say he hit the ground running and started operating through the newborn church. They were just brand new little babies and immediately the Holy Spirit started operating through them to do work through them so that the lost and dying world could find out about uh, the gospel. Verse five, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Earlier I mentioned that God's timing is often very symbolic, but here we see it was also very practical. Being that it was Pentecost, Jerusalem would be absolutely swollen with multiplied thousands of pilgrims who had come to offer worship. It was one of the prescribed feasts that everybody had to go to, right? And God's timing ensured the largest possible crowd would witness what the Lord was doing. So while I would have thought, okay, resurrection happens Sunday, we can get the ascension out of the way Monday morning, and by Monday afternoon, the church is born, 
but Jerusalem would have had many fewer people or travelers heading out or uh, just a strange, first of the Feast of Weeks was a perfect time where Jerusalem was going to be packed to the brim from people all over the world like we're seeing here. He ensured the largest possible crowd would witness what the Holy Spirit was doing. And we're told that they were there amongst, quote, devout men. There's a lesson here. Devout doesn't mean right. And devout doesn't mean a person knows everything. In fact, we're going to see that all of these devout men were confused. Many of them were downright cynical. And so, you know, to me, it was just a good encouragement. Don't be intimidated or afraid of devout atheists or a devout uh, member of the Jehovah's Witness or the LDS church. Don't be intimidated by devout anything other than Christian, right? Thinking, well, you know, how could I talk to them? You know, they're so smart about what they believe and things like that. And we're going to see that that sort of intellect and that sort of devotion, that's nothing in the face of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't need to be intimidated uh, just because people seem to be devout. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, all of these men from all of these nations had a common need. It didn't matter if they were from a poor country or a rich one. It didn't matter if they were spiritually near or far from the kingdom. All of them were outside the church. And so all of them needed salvation. And God loved them each very, very much. And so he sent a rescue team for them right away. Verse 6, and when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Uh, back in mid-March, maybe some of you remember, you might have heard a really loud bang on a Friday afternoon. I, I remember we heard it at the house and we were like, I wonder what that is. No, I'm not going to check. Whenever I hear like a weird loud noise like that, or sometimes people shoot off fireworks at night, sometimes I would like pull up my phone and open the Nextdoor app, which is like a community app, and you start seeing people go crazy on there. People, what was that? I think it was this, I think it was that. People getting mad, I know what it was, and somebody should call the police. Anyway, it's the way I entertain myself sometimes. Uh, it was alarming, it was shocking, it only lasted about one second. Uh, when things like that happen, we want to know what's up. What just happened? It turns out that an F-18 Super Hornet based out of NAS Lemoore had inadvertently broken the sound barrier. Uh, and uh, the base issued a little press release on it. And uh, it got a lot of attention. Now, imagine a noise like that, only not for one second, but it was louder and it was unceasing. It was prolonged. I mean, there's no ignoring it. Uh, and try to imagine what it would have been like to hear such a roar and such a, uh, a noise when you're a stranger to the sounds of, say, mechanical industry or freight trains or things like that. As far as I know, not a lot of tornadoes passing through Jerusalem. And so this was uh, quite a shock, no doubt. A star directed the wise men to the home of Jesus. Now a sound directed seekers to his new home, the church. The roar of the wind acted as a beacon saying, come on over here, see what God has done. God's desire is to announce himself through the lives of his people. God's not hiding. He wants to work. He wants to be known. He wants to uh, show himself through your life and through my life. He could just use the sounds and stars and things like that. Right now, he doesn't need us, but he has chosen to include us in his work. He says, now I use you to show people who I am and what I've done and what I can do 
for them. Here we're told the nature of the particular miracle that morning. The disciples were suddenly speaking in known languages that they had never learned. Languages that just so happened to fit with the particular members of the crowd gathering around them. Using this text, many conservative commentators mount a campaign which seeks to dismiss and destroy what is known as the gift of tongues in the New Testament. The gift of tongues, spoken of at length in 1 Corinthians, is not the miraculous speaking of known foreign languages. It is the speaking of an unknown heavenly language to God in prayer. However, taking their stand upon Acts 2.6 and planting their flag there, many well-meaning preachers and teachers tried to make the case that, there you go, look at what happened. There's no such thing as the gift of tongues in the charismatic sense. But listen, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.2. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. And so I'd say that's pretty clear. And I'd say that we uh, are able to see that the same vocabulary word can be used in two different ways. What we're seeing here in Acts 2 is not the gift of tongues in the first Corinthians sense. It is a miracle being worked by God through his people. But just as we would have to break with, from those who try to dismiss the gift of tongues, saying it doesn't exist, so too we must break with those on the other end of the spectrum who suggests that Acts 2 has given us a pattern proving that every genuine Christian must speak in tongues in the Corinthian sense if they're really born again. Maybe some of you experience this in your spiritual background or have family members that have. There are branches of the church and systems of teaching that say, hey, if you're really a Christian, you will speak in tongues. Don't worry, we'll teach you to speak in tongues. And they don't mean for known foreign languages. They mean the Corinthian sense, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that sense of the speaking in tongues, an unknown prayer language to God. And the problem is... Uh, Acts 2 is not tongues in the Corinthian sense, clearly, because they are, by definition, speaking languages that people in the crowd, unbelievers, by the way, immediately recognize and can understand. Acts 2 is not a pattern. Paul clearly says in his letter that all Christians will not be given the gift of tongues. And so it's unfortunate that uh, different camps try to plant a flag and, uh, in this particular text and dismiss whole other sections. But uh, in reality, I, I would say it's pretty straightforward here. What we're seeing here is not the gift, the spiritual gift of tongues. What we're seeing here is a miracle God is working through his people. Verse 7, and then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? You know, the Galileans were the backward hillbillies of their day. Uh, the scholars indicate that they had like a weird accent, had trouble pronouncing things. This pops up a couple times here. Or remember uh, when Peter was there outside of Jesus' trial the night before his crucifixion, people were like Galilean over there. In the same way, if somebody from, pick an accent, Texas or Minnesota or Louisiana strolled in here, we'd be like, yeah, I, I know where you're from. And the same thing was much more pronounced uh, for the Galileans here. I mean, listen, we don't expect Cletus to start speaking Latin, do we? Right? If you are watching a television show and a character named Cletus shows up and speaks the way that, that stereotypically a character named Cletus would speak, 
you would be surprised if he started reciting Latin poetry, right? It just doesn't fit according to the prejudice in our minds. But that's effectively what we're seeing here. The backwoods hillbillies are suddenly speaking in a multitude of languages, languages that these other folks thought were much better and more important and more high society than Galilean. And so they were mind blown to hear what they were hearing. It's significant for us to remember that unlike our culture around us, we are not defined by our background. You are defined by the body that you're a part of, the body of Christ. Our identity is not what class or what cultural group we're in, but rather our identity is in Christ. He's made us a new creation. That's how we're supposed to... Baptism, water baptism is all about that, right? I'm, I'm dying to my old life. I'm identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I belong to him now. You know, our society is so wrapped up right now in what group you're in or not in, uh, or what sort of victimhood you can claim for yourself. But that sort of mentality is just lethal to the kind of ministry we're seeing here. Oh, a Galilean can't engage with me. You don't uh, know what it's like to be me in this group or this particular, you know, in or out, whatever. And in the church, we've been unified together from all backgrounds, all walks of life. We're new creations. And our message is so powerful and so great, it doesn't matter where you're from. You know, when Paul Revere carried the message that the British are coming, no one stopped him and said, now hold on a minute, Mr. Fancy Silversmith. You think you can talk to me? You don't even know my life. You don't know what it's like to be me. I'm this or I'm that, right? Uh, by the way, let's ruin this for everybody. It was ruined for me. Paul Revere never said the British are coming. Just thought I'd throw that out there. There's a footnote in the notes. Sorry. <laughs> Our high school history is all a lie, but he, he didn't say that. Sorry. Your identity is in Christ, and the Holy Spirit empowers you as a Christian to be able to minister to anyone in all situations. Now, listen, if you want to celebrate uh, your heritage or some particular aspect of your background, go for it. You want to celebrate those things and enjoy those things, that's fine. But at the core of who you are, wrap yourself up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in some worldly identity, uh, not in some earthly victimhood or anything like that. You're not a victim, you're a victor in Christ Jesus. And he's made you a new creation. And he's put you into the body of the church to be unified with people that uh, you couldn't even imagine of all sorts of stripes and backgrounds and, and all of these sorts of different things. And so we wanna remember that uh, be encouraged that God has done that and that because of that, he can do some really amazing things even through Galileans like us, right? Uh, the Lord is so good to give little old Hanford people opportunities to be a part of his eternal kingdom work. Verse eight says this, and how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now listen, all of the people in the crowd that day spoke a common language. Everybody did. Everybody in the crowd spoke Greek, or at least Aramaic. 
But Greek was a universal common language, meaning that God didn't have to use this miracle to get their attention, but he did. And and in that, we see the Lord's tender, personal love for the lost. Each person heard in his own language the language they spoke as a child. And in that, the Lord is saying, I know you, and I've known you from your mother's womb, and I want to speak to you right at the core of who you are. I want to point out that I'm talking to you. God wasn't just talking generically to, you know, through this work. He said, no, I'm talking to you and to you and to you and to you. You're from some rare province. Yeah, let me speak to you. You guys had some strange dialect. Yeah, we're talking to you. Talking individually to each and every one of the thousands of people there. At least 15 different languages are represented in the list. There's probably more. A fair question that comes up a lot when discussing the God of the Bible or discussing the gospel is this. What about those who have never heard? What about those who grew up in some place where they did not hear the name of Jesus? There's a lot of great theological books written about the issue. But listen, here's what we know from a baseline perspective. For every single one of those people, God has proven that he knows their name, he knows their language, he loves them more than we could ever imagine, and he will be found by anyone who will seek him. There's a lot of long answers that uh, scholars and theologians you know, postulate and work through, um, and those are great to read about, but look at God's love, look how personal it is, look how tender it is. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance so we can trust him to do what is right. There's a good reminder here for us as well as we look to minister to people. We're members of the church after all. Ministry should be personal, not generic. That day, the Holy Spirit ministered personally. He first ministered personally to each individual believer, right? A tongue of fire on each and every one of them. And then he ministered personally to the multiplied thousands of people in the crowd. It wasn't all just some sort of vanilla generic thing and that people can take it or leave it. And so the Holy Spirit works personally. He doesn't work programmatically. And therefore, we as Christians in the church should work personally as well, not programmatically. And we see also that ministry is universal. Everybody, everybody, everybody needed the message. And a Galilean can minister to an Arab or a Roman or a Cretan or whoever. Uh, And so don't think that God can't use you to speak to someone on the other side of the tracks or someone in power or someone whoever, God can use a Galilean to minister to anybody. As the disciples praised God in languages that they had never learned, people were drawn in. Now think about this. What was the commission given to the disciples from Jesus? It was to go into all the world and make disciples. But what happens on the very first day of the church? God brings the nations to them. What a wonderful thing. Uh, it's like when Noah was told to gather the animals and bring them on the ark. That was a, such a huge job. And if you're Noah, you're thinking, I'm sorry, what? I have to go and bring all the animals? What are you talking about? Okay, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to try to do it. And what happens? God brought the animals. And, and they start streaming on their own toward the ark. And this is the kind of king we serve. One who says, I command you to do this. And then he yokes with us to accomplish what he desires. 
I command you to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And hey, guess what? I'm going to bring some nations to us right now. You want to do this with me? You want to work together today? That's the kind of king we serve. It's an amazing thing. You know, the disciples, they weren't doing anything that day. I mean, they were praying and they were together and that's wonderful, but they had no plan. They had no program. They had no strategy. They didn't call an ad agency and say, we need to get the word out about this little group that we're starting. They weren't doing anything. They were just being obedient to God and being willing to be used by God and then God used them and empowered them in a way that would not have been possible apart from the Holy Spirit. And once the Spirit filled them, miraculous ministry started to happen. Acts 2.12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. When God is on the move, some seek, others scoff. That's almost always the case. We should notice that for either group, those who really wanted to know and those who were just making fun, the miracle itself was not enough to convert them, right? They didn't see a miracle and say, okay, we surrender to whatever God this is. You know, you win, God. They say, what's this about? No one converted at the sound of the wind. No one converted at the sight of the flames. They needed a clear explanation of what was happening. They needed a clear presentation of the gospel. And as we'll see next time, the disciples were ready to preach and ready to explain and introduce those lost souls to Christ. The Christians weren't full of new wine that day. They were full of the Spirit in a new way, a lasting way. And he's the same Spirit who wants to fill you and me to continue the work of the church in the 21st century. In the book of Acts, when the Spirit fills a person, we see them do all sorts of wonderful things for the Lord. Sometimes they preach. Sometimes they wait tables. Sometimes they're just full of praise. There's not just one thing that happens when you're full of the Spirit. There's all sorts of different things. Our aim is to be people who are filled, not to be caught up in chasing particular experiences or caught up in particular controversies, but to celebrate the wonderful works of God and the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit, to uh, revel in the matchless giver who loves us enough to do all of this and more for us. And then when he sees fit to do with our lives what he wants as his vessel, it will be wonderful, amazing, and truly powerful in ways we can't anticipate. Same Holy Spirit is for you and I tonight. We're part of the church. That means that gift is given to us as well.